0: Let me invite you to turn to the passage just read, Romans 14, 1 through 12. Those of you downstairs listening online as well, let's uh, turn there together to this great passage of text that requires maybe a little bit of um, attention and care as we look to interpret it. You know, the issue that Paul is addressing here is... An issue of both diet and days. I think that's a good way to remember what's going on here. We have issues of diet and we have issues of days. The problem with diets in this first century world is that the Jews in the Roman church would have a hard time accessing meat that hadn't been ceremonially sacrificed to pagan gods. And so that afflicted their conscience. And so they basically became vegetarians, And similarly, there were these Jewish holidays, Pentecost, Passover, even the Sabbath, that they considered holier than other days. They were Jewish holidays. Holiday means holy day. And some Jews were really conscientious about observing those days. Other Jews, like Paul, were not that conscientious. And the Gentiles, for sure, were not conscientious. Some Jews were conscientious about not eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, became vegetarians. They had a tender conscience about this matter. Paul calls them weak in this passage, which might sound a little harsh, but he's actually trying to be gracious and understanding towards them. You know, a few years ago, I was in Cameroon. I was doing this Bible interpretation seminar for these Cameroonians, and this issue came up, meat sacrifice to idols, and I taught it trying to show the bridge between an issue in the first century and an issue in the 21st century, saying, even though we might not have meat sacrificed to idols, we got issues like that in our own day. And the Cameroonians were quick to correct me. And they said, no, Tony, we, we have meat sacrificed to idols here. I was like, oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, I should have probably known that in Africa. And then Pastor Bua, some of you all know Pastor Bua, He's preached here before. He Talked about how, you know, these witch doctors get a hold of the meat in some communities before they go to market and they do some ceremony or whatever. And he said, in front of all of these Cameroonians, it's just meat. I'm going to eat it. I'm not going to ask any questions about it. I, my, it doesn't bother my conscience at all. And you would have think that he wanted to start a fight with that statement. Because as soon as he said this, this whole uproarious conflict emerged in this room full of Cameroonians. You had the eat the meat faction and the don't eat the meat faction. And I was there, the North American, trying to referee this thing with everybody fighting. And, and I thought for it, we got through it, we did, barely. And I remember thinking in that moment, man, the, the Africans in this room are closer to Paul's cultural context than we are in North America. Now I would caution you before you get too judgmental or dismissive of the Cameroonians or too dismissive of the Romans by thinking oh you know those people they're so legalistic before you start thinking we don't have issues like that we don't have arguments about tainted meat we don't have disputable issues in our days that brothers and sisters in Christ fight over let me let me just challenge you don't we now don't we now? Don't we have some issues that we fight over in the church even? No, Pastor Tony, no. Let me give you some debated issues that we fight over. Just before I read this list, let me just say, I'm going to offend every person in this room right now, all right? So just, just get ready. Brace yourself. Here's some things we debate about as Christians. How about homeschool versus public school? Christians argue over that matter in this day. Do churches divide over that matter? Yes, they do. How about drinking versus no drinking? Temperance versus moderation. How about dancing versus no dancing? How about secular music versus no secular music? You You could have started a fight in my childhood over that issue. We don't listen to secular. We only listen to Christian music. Drums are from the devil, some would say. What about movies versus no movies? What about birth control versus no birth control? Ooh. What about breastfeeding versus no breastfeeding? I wish we didn't fight over that in the church, but we do sometimes. What about vaccines versus no vaccines? You're getting controversial, Pastor Tony. What about women working outside the home versus not working outside the home? What about voting Democrat versus voting Republican? We never fight over that, do we? Especially on social media, we never do that. What about cigar smoking? What about women wearing makeup? You know, that used to be quite the hotly debated issue because historically, just so you know, makeup was used for actors and for prostitutes. So the idea that that would come to the church, that, that started some fights back in the day. Not as much anymore. Actually, my professor at Moody he used to tell this story about these elderly Dutch women, women who had granddaughters who went off to America. And these, these Dutch women were so distraught because they had heard through the grapevine that their granddaughters in America were wearing makeup. And they, it, it was so upsetting to these older women that they started to cry. And they wept and, and, and the, the tears welled up in their eyes and started to drip down their cheeks and it dripped right past the cigarettes that they were smoking in their mouths. And then it just kept on welling up and dripping down their face and dripped off, in, off their chins into the beers that they were drinking together. That's how upset they were about their American granddaughters wearing makeup They shed tears in their beers over that. Oh, Pastor Tony, those crazy Dutch leaders, we'd never do anything like that in America. We'd never judge people or jeopardize the unity of the church with non essential issues. Wouldn't we, though? Wouldn't we, though? You know, if I wanted to, I could probably start a fight this morning about vaccines. I could just rim this church right into, just split it down the middle. It's called a Scottish revival when you do something like that. <laughs> you just split the church in two. The sermon is not about vaccines. The sermon is not about drinking beer. The sermon is not about whether or not you should cancel your Netflix account. By the way, I canceled my Netflix account. And after I did that, I ate a big, juicy steak in celebration of that. And it may or may not have been sacrificed to idols. I don't know. I didn't ask. And then I ate some bread that was so full of gluten, it was coming out of my ears. It was great. But this sermon is not about that. I'm not going to convince you to cancel your Netflix account or eat or not eat meat or Get vaccines or not get vaccines. This sermon, this passage is about unity in the church. It's about this precious, beautiful thing that Christ died for called unity in the church. How do we protect it? How do we learn to live together and love one another when we have some pretty significant differences of opinion on some stuff? How do we disagree on non-essential matters and still love each other in the body of Christ? That's what this sermon is about. By the way, that word non-essential, I'm using that word very intentionally. That, that word non-essential, non-essential. Did everybody hear me there? Non-es- that word is huge. We're talking about non-essentials here. So I'm not going to convince you that we need to agree to disagree on whether or not Christ is truly God or not. Okay? Well, yeah, he thinks he is and he thinks it's not. That's okay. No. We're not going to talk about whether the, the authority of God's word is, is true and authoritative for our lives. We're not going to argue. that is. There are certain essentials that the church has to believe in to be called the church. There are certain things that we have to agree on. They're called essentials. But to make all issues essential is, quite frankly, just unbiblical. You've got to deal with Romans 14. And there are these things. There are non-essential issues, debatable, agree-to-disagree issues in the church. You might call them gray area issues. And Paul is telling us here that with these disputable matters, we need to prioritize the unity of the church. Okay? So let's talk about that as we work through the text this morning. Here's the question I want to ask and answer. How do we protect the unity of the church on debatable matters? give you three answers to that question. How do we protect the unity of the church on debatable matters? First of all, we agree to disagree on non-essential issues. And we can do this. We can do this church. I don't want to, I don't want this to feel like a big rebuke this morning. This, this is this is something we can all get to as the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul is challenging us to get there. Paul says in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome that weak in faith, brother, that weak in faith, sister. Not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, don't welcome him into the church so that you can fight with him about it. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything. I'm in that camp, by the way. I am not a vegetarian. That probably shouldn't surprise anybody in this room. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. That is so key right there. God has welcomed him into the church. So you welcome him, her, too. You know, it's interesting that Paul starts here with food, because food is such a personal thing for people. It really is. You know, some people are super conscientious about the things that they eat and the things that they put inside of their body. Gluten-free, carb-free, soy-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, no MSG. I don't even know what those words mean. I don't even know what those acronyms stand for. Other people... So some people are really conscientious about that. Other people... Yours truly are, it's just not, I'm just not that conscientious about it. And, you know, some people have to be conscientious. I get it. I do. Because of allergies, because of whatever. Some people are particular because they want to be. They want to eat healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. The issue in Rome wasn't really about eating healthy. It was about religious observance and, and conscience. There was, there was an affliction to people's conscience. Like I said, the Jews in Paul's day couldn't legitimately find meat that hadn't gone through some pagan ritual. So, I mean, you just, to get meat was problematic if you were a Jew living in the belly of the beast, living in Rome. And so, because of that, they just decided to eat vegetables. And of course, they had that great example in the Old Testament, the hero of the Old Testament, Daniel, what did he do? He did the same thing. couldn't find meat that was acceptable, so he just ate vegetables, and he and his friends were better for it. So I'm sure there were people in the Roman church that were like, let's be like Daniel. Yeah, let's stay away from those those meats and just eat vegetables. And what's interesting here is that Paul calls the vegetable-only people, the Daniels, so to speak, he calls them weak in faith. He calls them weak. The reason for that is because Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament laws concerning food. Jesus himself declared all foods clean to eat, Mark 7, 19. You remember in the book of Acts, there's that moment where the sheep comes down before Peter, and there's all these animals on there that are unclean, and and God says, "Take and eat," and Peter's like, "No, I can't eat anything unclean." And it was in that moment that God showed Peter that these are clean, and and actually, God was doing something bigger than that. He was showing Peter that Gentiles who he thought were unclean are actually clean, and he's bringing them into the church. So it was more than just food; it was a it was a mindset. Well, Paul wrote Romans several years after that happened with Peter. And you don't just have, you know, the occasional Gentile coming into the church or coming to Christ. There were Gentiles coming to Christ like crazy throughout the Roman Empire. And you had, this is beautiful, you had this full-blown multicultural church in Rome. You had Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. You had Jews who had grown up observing the Old Testament all their whole lives. And we're really sensitive about that. And then you had Gentiles who, you know, did horrible things like eat pork. And they were coming right into the church. And these people that had disagreements over that had to learn to love each other and live together. I mean, it's that's, that's, that's beautiful that they did that. And it's not easy having multicultural kinds of churches where people think differently And, you know, Paul, as you read the book of Romans, he's not willing to skimp or compromise on essential doctrinal truths. You know, Romans 1 through 11, Paul is like, this is the doctrinal truth you've got to hold to. And then he gives us some other things that we need to take a hard stand on in Romans 13. Paying our taxes, obeying the government, loving your neighbor, obeying the Ten Commandments. There needs to be widespread agreement in the church on those matters. But what you eat... What you eat, that's not something to fight over. That's not something to start a schism in the church. That's not something that we need acrimony over in the church. And Paul actually gives these commands that are strong here. Look at verse 3 Let not the one who eats despise the one who obtain, abstains, let not the one who eats despise. Paul doesn't give a strong command about eating or not eating. He gives a strong command about despising. Don't despise. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Can we discuss these things, these debatable things? Yes, I think we can. Can we, can we debate them even in our small groups? Yes, I think we can. We can agree to disagree. But be careful now. Be careful. Don't let your disagreements become despising or passing judgment. You know, when I say agree to disagree, let me say this as well. There's a sense in which, I mean, when the, when the JWs come to my house and try to tell me, convince me that Jesus isn't God, there's a sense in which I need to agree to disagree with them, okay? Like, you have your convictions. I'm not convincing you. You're not convincing me. We'll agree to disagree. But I, I don't take that JW to church and call them my brother and sister in Christ. Okay? That's different. Same thing with unbelievers. I have unbelieving friends. You have unbelieving friends. If you, if you do, you're going to have things you disagree with, you agree to disagree with. It's different in the context of the church because you don't take that unbeliever to church and call him brother or sister in Christ and, and, and embrace that unity of fellowship in the body of Christ. This is something different than that. So it's an agree to disagree, but it's an agree to disagree with love, with brotherly love, with, this, with the sense of harmony, with the desire to be unified before Christ. It's, it's, it's an agree to disagree, but let's get together and worship Jesus together. Let's prioritize that above these other things, these secondary things. And that's good, and that, and that pleases the Lord. You know what, and I'll say this too diversity of opinions on non essential matters is good for the church. Did y'all hear me on that? I don't want to look out on a church full of Tony Caffey clones. Monolithic homogeneity, homogeneity is boring, uniformity is boring. You know what's exciting? You know, it's beautiful people of different opinions coming together, worshiping together, and prioritizing Jesus above secondary matters. That's beautiful, and that's glorious. Tell me if you've heard this before. You've probably heard me say this from this pulpit. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Y'all heard that before? That's so good. I'm going to say it again: an essentials unity a non-essential is liberty, and non-essentials liberty in all things, charity. Write this down as number two. How do we protect the unity of the church with debatable matters, matters? We agree to disagree on non-essential issues. We renounce lordship over other people's lives. Secondly, we renounce lordship over other people's lives. The following verses that we're going to look at, verses 4 through 9, just, let me just speak personally for a moment. These, these verses were really liberating for me this last week. The elders could probably tell you. I've, I've been kind of emotional this last week, just struggling with some different things. And, and it was really liberating to read these verses and to be reminded that there's only one Lord of this world, and it ain't me. Okay, it's a good reminder because I'll just tell you, you know, I feel sometimes as a pastor, I feel, you know, there's this authority that God has vested in me as leader of the church. I'm an elder. I'm a preacher. I'm accountable to the Lord for what I say. You know, if that's not terrifying enough, you know, I'm an under shepherd of God's people here within the church. But there there's a massive difference between authority and lordship. Right. Right. And I'm actually thankful for my elders because they've helped me this last week to see that there's also this massive difference between the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and us as under-shepherds. And authority is good. I mean, I, I think there's a tendency for all of us to maybe overestimate authority or to think too much of it. We've got to be careful with that. Authority is good. There are structures in this world that God has established, and those are good. But there's only one Lord There's only one Lord. And Paul says this in verse 4. This is a pretty intense question here. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you to do that? Other people serve Christ. They don't serve you. So don't pass judgment on them. But, you know, remember what Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. It sounds like Jesus here, but but the reasoning's a little different. Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? It is before his own pastor that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. The idea here is that we, we stand or fall not on non-essential issues, whether or not we eat meat or not, whether or not we smoke cigarettes or not, some of those secondary things, we stand or fall based upon essential issues. Like, do you have faith in Christ? And if you have faith in Christ, the Lord will be able to make you, help you to stand in that moment. And that clues me in, too. We're not talking about an issue that's compromising the truth of the gospel. Yes, maybe they had a conscience, these Jews in Paul's day, that led them to a different diet and to a different way of life. But it wasn't something that was like, we have to do this in order to be saved. Paul deals with that in other places in the New Testament. And he said, that's another gospel. That's not even the truth of the gospel. That's not what we're dealing with here in Romans. We're dealing with people who live differently and the Lord is able to help them stand. They've got faith in Christ. One person, look at verse 5, esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike, each should be fully convinced in his own mind. You want to observe Passover? Go right ahead, says Paul. You you want to to do some work on the Sabbath or you don't want to do some work on the Sabbath? Go right ahead. You want to send your kids to public school so that they might be a, a light in that dark place and lead other people to Christ and be influencers in this world? Go right ahead and do that. Be fully convinced in your own mind that that's the right thing to do. You want to homeschool your kids? You want to protect them from maybe the secular and worldly influences of their local school? You go right ahead. You do what is right before the Lord as you see it right. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We can disagree on that and still love each other and worship in the, the body of Jesus Christ. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So whatever you do, keep your eyes on the Lord with these secondary matters. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I had this verse it reminded me, I forgot about this, and, and reading this verse this last week reminded me, I had this friend in college who, I, was, I, I would always pray before my meals. I still do that. And... I had this friend who tried to convince me that that that's so legalistic. That's not even in the Bible that you pray for your meals. So why are you doing that? It's like, huh? You know, this is, this is college, Tony, right? And you guys ever had a friend like that? Someone who's like anti-legalistically legalistic? You ever had someone like that? <laughs> those guys, those kinds of people, just tie you up in knots. Uh, and and I didn't have the courage at the time. I was college, Tony, right? Uh, I, I, but I did read Romans 14, 6 and say, you know, if I'm thanking the Lord, for the, why why can't I thank the What I wanted to tell him is, look, man, if you don't want to pray for your food, if you want to dive in and eat like a heathen, go right ahead. I'm not going to stop you, but I'm going to pray for my food. Maybe I should find that guy and give him a call sometime this week. I don't, or maybe I should just let it go. I will say this. And, and maybe I need to work on this. It really bugs me when people draw lines in the sand about non essential issues. It really bugs me. It bugs me when people bring judgment on other people for either legalistic or anti legalistic reasons. For none of us lives to himself, verse 7. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, this is so good, y'all. Are y'all, are y'all reading this? I've got to highlight or highlight this. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. We are the Lord's. We don't belong to other people. In other words, we don't belong to other people. They don't own us. They shouldn't be allowed to control us. The Lord owns us. The Lord controls us. We belong to him. When I was a kid, my pastor used to tell this story. He my pastor loved his coffee. And he would go to the local breakfast place. It was a place called Grandy's. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but he would go to this place called Grandy's in Austin, Texas every morning, eat his breakfast, eat his coffee, and he loved his coffee. And he had this friend who had a really tender conscience about coffee. He he didn't drink it. He didn't like being controlled by it. Maybe there's some wisdom in that. Not being controlled by coffee. But, but he started to take umbrage with the fact that his pastor went to Grandy's and was drinking coffee. And my pastor told him, he, he's like, look, if this is a stumbling block for you, I won't drink coffee in front of you. Don't come with me to Grandy's. But... You're not going to control my behavior because you have some tender conscience on this matter. I'm going to enjoy my coffee. And I have freedom in Christ to do that. And I I think we'll talk about stumbling, the stumbling block issue next week. But I'm a little leery of people who try to use stumbling block kinds of things to control everybody else's behavior. That makes me nervous. And I'll say this too as it relates to conscience. Your conscience is a good thing. Do y'all know that it's a good thing. And in fact, I, you know, some people have an overactive conscience. I wish people had stronger consciences that, that help them to understand and, and to be convicted about things that they don't seem to have much conviction about. But I will say this. Sometimes your conscience needs to be trained with what the Bible actually says. I mean, I've heard stories about Mormons who have gotten saved and then they, they can't drink caffeine because it's just been hammered into them since they were kids. Like you can't have caffeine. That's That's sinful. And, and maybe the same thing applies to, to Muslims who come to Christ who can't eat pork or Jews who come to Christ who don't eat non-kosher things. I don't want to judge that person. I don't want to start arguments with that person. I don't want to be a stumbling block to that person. But there might be a time to step in and say, hey, you know what? Here's what the Bible actually says about that. And And, and maybe you need to Teach your conscience a little better about what the Bible actually says. There's a place for that. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Here's another story that my pastor used to tell. He, when he was a younger pastor, he led this other couple to Christ. Just, you know, raw new believers, husband and wife. And he, he liked to go bowling, so he just invited them to go bowling with him. Well, when he asked these new Christians to go bowling, they were mortified, because in their BC days, the bowling alley, what they did is they in their circles is they would go to the bowling alley to wife swap. That's what they did. So they had this whole connotation about bowling that it's, for, it's used for sexual immorality, and here's their pastor asking them to go bowling. And so my pastor said, look, okay, don't go bowling with me. This is not maybe good for you right now. But he also wanted to teach them, look, there are people in this world that actually like to go bowling just to bowl. They're not looking to do something else. They're not looking to do something sinful. And he he walked them through a process of teaching their conscience that was overactive about a non-essential thing. About how to be Better able to perceive things. Let me give you another example. This is going to maybe knock your socks off this morning. But whether or not you saw this in the Bible or not, Jesus actually turned water into wine. Did you all know that? People drink wine in the Bible. Shocking. You know what's even more shocking about that? Jesus turned water into wine, and it was good wine too. Like, wow, they saved the best stuff for last. And to draw a line in the sand about temperance versus moderation is not a good idea. What does the Bible actually teach about wine and beer drinking? Drunkenness. And there's a huge difference between drinking and drunkenness. That's a huge difference. And if there are people in this church that say, you know what, Pastor Tony, it's not good, that even go near that. My conscience would not, I've done bad stuff with that in the past, or I could do bad stuff with it right now. Don't. I'm going to say, don't get near it. Don't. I agree, and I won't be a stumbling block to you. And you know what? I'm not going to call you weak for that. There's probably wisdom in that. But let's not draw a line in the sand over non-essential issues like that. Why? Because you belong to the Lord, and you will answer to the Lord someday for your actions. That's something we all need to keep in mind. I'll talk more about that in just a second. I'm not the judge ultimately of your life, and neither is some other person. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the judge. Look at verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are his. We are the Lord's. Look how Paul works the gospel into this too. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Hallelujah, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Do you know why I can't be anyone's Lord in this room this morning? Do you know why you call me Pastor Tony and not Lord Tony? Because I didn't die and rise from the dead. Now, if I did that, I could wield some power here. I'm real power. But I didn't do that, and I'm not going to do that. And and when I say die and rise from the dead, I'm not talking about somebody who had some dream about dying or had a near-death experience. I mean somebody who went to the cross and absorbed the wrath of God into himself to pay for your sin, was in the tomb for three days, and then rose from the dead. That is your Lord. You belong to him. You submit to him. He is the Lord of your life. And just saying that over and over again, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. There's only one Lord is so healthy for us to keep us from thinking that we might control other people's behavior or enact some kind of standard on other people. Maybe the same, the same standard that we hold ourselves to. And let me just say a word about that to parents. I know we got a lot of parents here at Harvest Decatur, but this is a hard thing for parents because you get used to early in your kid's life just having control over everything. And that's kind of hard at first, but then it's kind of satisfying. Like, everything they do is under my control. Nice. (laughs) That doesn't last. Y'all know it doesn't. And I'll just say, because I've seen it, parents who lord their authority over their kids mess their kids up instead of pointing them to the ultimate lordship of Jesus Christ. You got about 18 years worth of authority, give or take, over your kids. What are you preparing them for? You're not preparing them to be the authority over their lives for eternity. If you are, you're going to screw them up. You're preparing them to submit to the lordship of Christ. And that leads to a final point for this message. Here's a third way to protect the unity of the church with debatable matters. We leave final judgment to God. We renounce our lordship over other people's lives and we leave because we're not the Lord and we're not ultimately the judge either. Paul asks in verse 10, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? And, and just in asking that question, it leads me to believe, you know, Paul's not dealing with some hypothetical here. Like, like, I think the Roman church was probably a good church, a healthy church. It's a multicultural church. That's cool. But it wasn't a perfect church. I think there was a real issue. I, in other words, I think folks were getting into it in this church over this issue. And there were some fights that Paul had to referee. And here's how he's doing He's asking some hard questions. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why are you doing that? And just so you know, this word for pass judgment, this is not like, I don't think it's a good idea that you do this. That's not what we're talking about. This is way more serious than that. This is saying, that's wrong. You eating that meat, that's wrong. No, no. You not eating that meat, that's wrong. It's sinful. It's sinful for you to do that. For you to drink that glass of wine, for you to send your kids to public school, for you to get that vaccine, for you to take that medication, it's wrong, it's sinful, that's passing judgment on your brother. Or maybe you don't pass judgment, but you do look down your nose at them, and you despise them. How could you do that? How could you send your kids to the University of Illinois, that pagan university? How could you let your kids wear that Chicago Cubs jersey? Shame, 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 Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? Man. For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. The question Paul's asking you here is, how can you stand in God's place of judgment when you yourself are going to be judged by God? You're in the wrong seat. Get out of that seat and get in your own seat. There's only one judge. You know, the family, just to ease your conscience, maybe that's not the right word here, just so you know, that family that you disagree with here in the church, with whatever they do that you don't do, they will answer to God for their actions. Okay? That kind of takes the pressure off. Phew. That person, that brother in Christ that does some stuff that you're like, I don't know about that. That sister in Christ that does some stuff that you're like, I don't know about that. They will answer to God ultimately for the things that they do. Let me... Let me Shock your system this morning. Your kids will answer ultimately to God for what they do. You will not be in the judge's seat when your kids get judged. And you know what? Maybe somebody needs to hear this this morning. Your parent will answer to God for their actions. That might be for a kid in this room right now. That might be for somebody who's 60 years old who still hurts from something their parent did to them. Your parent will answer to God for that. You're not the judge. Jesus will judge them in his time. Verse 11, for it is written, Isaiah 45, verse 23, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, so then each of you, this is sobering, each of you will give an account to himself. Of himself to God. Leave final judgment to God. Leave final judgment to God, Harvest Decatur. Get out of the judge's seat and let God judge. And to that, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, I'll answer to God for my actions. Other believers will answer to God for their actions. Got it. But what if my actions cause another person to stumble? What if my drinking a beer or watching a TV show or dancing at the local watering hole, what if that is harmful to another believer? What if it causes a fellow believer to struggle deeply with temptation? Should I abstain from that act? That's a good question. It's a really good question. And I'm going to answer it for you. Next week. So come on back, y'all. It's an important thing. We'll discuss about how to protect the purity of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll close with this. Let me just share a few thoughts on unity of the church. I'm almost done. I just want to say this. We live in a world right now, and you guys know this, that is increasingly polarized. Is that fair? Everybody's just divided. And it kind of grieves my heart because we used to be the kind of country that was super unified on stuff. And we were actually the marvel of the entire world during World War I and World War II because we, as Americans, would fight like cats and dogs over domestic issues. But then when there was a war to fight, we would unify. and We'd be together unlike any other nation in the world. And I'll just tell you, we're just not like that anymore as a country. Maybe someday we'll get back to that. I don't know. But we're just not like that. We're so divided. You know I don't know about our country. I don't know if we'll ever be unified like that again, but our church needs to be is everybody listening and when I say our church, I don't mean like the universal church, like every Christian out there and every Christian for the last two thousand years. When I say our church needs to be unified, I mean harvest. Decatur, this church. Can we disagree on some stuff? Yeah, we can. Can we debate some stuff in our small group? Yes, we can. Can we talk through some stuff and challenge each other in relationship with one another? Absolutely. I actually have a pretty high capacity for disagreement. Sonia probably says it's too high. I I can argue some stuff and be okay. Here's what we can't do. We can't pass judgment on one another. We can't despise one another for thinking differently on these non-essential issues. We've got to protect the unity of the church. Unity is beautiful, Harvesticator. Unity is beautiful. Uniformity is blech. Unity is beautiful. Let's be that kind of church. Can we now? I I don't need this every Sunday, but I need it this morning. I need a good, hearty amen from the church. (laughs) Let me give you a running start at it this time, all right? We need unity in our church. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are unified as a church because Jesus Christ is our Lord. Because you saved our souls. And Lord, we are different in this church. Praise God, we're different. Come from different backgrounds. We have different opinions on stuff. That's okay, Lord. We have one opinion on you. You are our God. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. You are our Messiah. And Lord, we're so thankful that you've allowed this collection of different kinds of people to gather and worship here. Our country may be disunified, but we are unified. Our world is may lack harmony, but may there be harmony in this church, God. And Lord, I I pray that our consciences would be the right kinds of consciences that convict us about those things that are clear in the Bible and that bring agreement to others, brothers and sisters. God, help us with that. Help us to train our consciences to be obedient to what God's word actually says. And Lord, I'm I'm thinking even now about that, that song that we sang earlier, your loving kindness leads us to repentance. God, if we have failed in that as a church, if we've been too harsh with our brothers and sisters on some stuff, help us to repent. Help us to even go this week and say, I'm sorry, I I pushed you on that non-essential issue too much. And help us to be like you, Lord, imitating your loving kindness, your grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you that despite the fact that you're the Lord and the judge, you set aside your glory temporarily and came to earth and died for our sins. It's so beautiful, Lord. We never grow tired of remembering the gospel. And your gospel unites us. Unite this church around the truth of your gospel, we pray. Amen.